Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Inside Thrill Radio, of course, hosted by Jenny Milchman. And tonight, Jenny has an all-star cast kicking off the last show here of 2017 for Inside Thrill Radio. We're going to have none other than John Land, John Gilstrap, J.D. Barker, and even Natello. So you want to make sure that you stick around for the entire hour to listen to this one. It's going to be powerful and some really good stuff going on in there. Uh, We also want to let you know that all of our shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their works and their authors and everything they have going on. Of course, you can always check out suspensemagazine.com for more information on our magazine. And um, what we got coming out, our best of issue, is going to be out here in a couple days. So you want to check that out. If you don't get a copy of it, just email me. We will send that over to you. You can see who our Crimson Scribe Award winner is, Best Book of 2017, which uh, Greg Horowitz for Orphan X won last year, and he is going to be handing over the trophy this year to another fabulous author and a great book. So without any further ado, I want to pass it over to Jenny Milchman as she takes it home. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Inside Thrill Radio. We are a joint production of International Thriller Writers and Suspense Magazine, and I am thrilled to present our season finale with four fantastic guests. I am honored to have on John Gilstrap, whose final target is just out this year, John Land, whose recent brand-new book, Strong to the Bone, in his Caitlin Strong series, was just out, my goodness, a week ago. J.D. Barker, whose novel, The Fourth Monkey, is his first release with HMH, and who also has a indie-published novel, Forsaken, that's blowing up many charts. And Eva Natiella, whose memory box is from Fine Line Publishing, an imprint of her own, and has hit the New York Times and USA Today bestsellers list. John Gilstrap is the author of, I counted them up, and this might be the wrong number, so somebody correct me, but I believe 16 standalone novels. Nobody's correcting me? No, No, I got close. close. John says I'm close. He's also written four screenplays for Hollywood based on some of our other favorite authors, Nelson Deville, Deville, Thomas Harris, and he's in the process of writing and co-producing, I believe, a film adaptation of his own book, Six Minutes to Freedom, which we are going to really enjoy hearing about. John Land has written over 41 novels. I mean, I have to let my jaw drop a little bit. (laughs) But including eight in his critically acclaimed Caitlin Strong series, which is the book we're going to be talking about tonight, Strong to the Bone, love the way the titles work. Um, and, And most recently, he's teamed up with Heather Graham, another ITW favorite, and they're penning The Rising, the first in an explosive sci-fi series, but I actually thought there was one out already, so I'm going to get into that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought so. Okay, so we're going to get into that with John Land a little bit as well. J.D. Barker, The Fourth Monkey is the first in a series, and next one is out um, next year. I am going to call it this. this. This is how I'm going to describe it. And inside Thrill Radio listeners who know me will know what this means. It's the first serial killer book since Thomas Harris that I have read. Um, as well as Forsaken, which I mentioned previously. And I believe he has major uh, film and TV news in his bio as well that he will describe for us. And Eva Nacielo, the memory box, it's interesting. Eva probably writes one of the more um, domestic suspense, you know, titles here. It's a thriller for sure, but it's certainly got that domestic element, which is so hot right now, the girl books, and I'm going to love hearing Eva go into that. So let's start with John Gilstraw, who's going to be talking tonight about Final Target. And let's tell us a little bit about the book, John. Okay. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Happy holidays to everyone. Um, Final Target is the tenth book in the Jonathan Grave series. Jonathan Grave is a freelance hostage rescue specialist. He's a former Delta operator whose business now is to – get back hostages who have been taken. He does a lot of his work for Uncle Sam, doing things that Uncle Sam uh, isn't allowed to do. And the latest and final target 
he goes down to Mexico to uh, rescue a DEA agent who's been taken captive by the cartels. And by the end of the first chapter, we realize that uh, he and his team, Jonathan and his team, have been uh, betrayed. And now they're left alone deep in the jungles of Mexico with really no way out. And when they end up taking uh, refuge in a, an orphanage, uh, which is also tied to the cartels, he then, it turns out the orphans, he endangers the orphans by his presence, and he has to flee the country with 18 kids in tow to get about 200 miles from where he is to, uh, to a rescue point along the Gulf. Oh, wow. It was, it's a lot of fun to write. It's, um, the, this is the first time I've had this whole dealing with a group of, of hostages, uh, essentially runaways, and the interaction. My characters, Jonathan Grave is, is the main character, but he has this lethal uh, companion named Boxers, who really does not get along well with children, and the interaction. There's a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of action in it, and, um, and the card, it doesn't end well for the cartel, so it's a hit all around. It's a justice play is what it is. I mean, I, I, I loved that element of it. I did think the interactions with the children were amazing because you don't necessarily see that in a thriller. Um, and I guess I'd love to hear a little bit more about what writing that was like and bringing those characters in. Well, I've always, sort of my niche of the thriller market, or at least the way my storytelling sensibilities is, um, I like dealing with the interaction of, of people, children in particular, with adults and, and in these desperate situations. And uh, the orphanage, the House of St. Agnes in uh, Mexico, is actually the, was set up by the cartels to house the children of parents who have been killed by the cartels. So each of these kids mm. has violence in their past. Mm. And, uh, and now they have an opportunity to hide and run away, or they have an opportunity to, to flee and try something new. So it's, it's redemption, it's justice. Uh, it's, I, it was, I had more fun writing that book than I've had writing books in a long time. <laughs> it shows. The ending is out of sight, by the way. For those of you who like to be, have a satisfying ending, I highly recommend the hard, final target. I should have said, by the way, Inside Thrill listeners, books make great Christmas gifts, and you could not do better than the books that we will be talking about tonight. So thank you, John. Thanks for introducing Final Target. John Land, the Caitlin Strong series, and now you have um, Strong to the Bone, which is out, but it looks like you have another one recently on its heels. Is that right? What how 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 frequently do they come out? Tell us that. And then no, tell us once, once a year, the oh, is. strongest deal comes out the, uh, the same exact day next year, just like uh, okay. Strong, to the, Strong to the Bone came out. They come out the same day every year, which is fine. Hmm. Um, the, the date changes, but uh, it's the first Tuesday of December. So it's like, okay, you, know, gotcha. uh, I don't, you know, hopefully that, that's a big sales day. Hasn't proven yeah. that way yet, but maybe next year. <laughs> well, I mean, it should prove that way. Caitlin is an amazing character. And, I mean, again, when we're talking about justice and all that, it's wonderful to, I don't know, I like seeing a female series character. So tell us, John, about how the Caitlin Strong series came to be. Well, it's, the, the, the series came to be. Um, I, I'd like to give you a real esoteric answer, but the bottom line was Caitlin Strong was born at a sales meeting, a marketing meeting at, at my publisher where we were talking about what I was going to do next, and the head of sales, head of paperback sales, there, there were paperbacks back in those days. There were still wall stores back in those days. Um, you know, there, there were other ways to sell books. Digital was just really getting started. And the head of paperback sales said, you know, Thrillers are the most popular genre, and women buy 75% of all books. But no one at the table, after he raised this, could name a single female action hero. Not a mystery right. hero, not someone who, not a detective, but someone right. who can mix it up with the likes of Jonathan Graves and Jack Reacher. That kind mm-hmm. of character. So yep. I had always thought about a female action hero, but you can't have a female Navy SEAL or a female... Delta girl or or a special ops, they work in support backgrounds, but they don't work in active combat situations. So at that table, right then, I said, "Female Texas Ranger," and let's call her Caitlin Strong. And literally, it happened that quickly. It had nothing to do with creative juices. It was all about looking for something that would be marketable 
Because here's something, I, when, when I talk about coming up with ideas for books, you don't sell, you don't, come, you don't write a book or, or conceive a book or a specialist series unless you have an idea of how to sell it. Um, the selling isn't as important as the writing. But that said, um, Caitlin Strong is a, is the is the, this series is is the most fun I've ever had writing a series. It's the third major series I've done, um, but it's the one I feel um, has, that has brought me the farthest. And I look forward to starting every book. Strong to the bone is the ninth in the series. I think they're as fresh as ever. Yeah, I, yeah, I would definitely say that. And actually, tell us a little bit about specifically the the kind of demon and the battle that Caitlin's dealing with in Strong to the Bone, because it also is a very, yeah, it's, it feels like it's more timely than ever, even though it has its roots in history. The key to any series is to keep it fresh. And I think John, I can see John nodding right now. For the same reason, he brought children into his, as a plot point, in right. um, his latest thriller. What I did with Caitlin, I always like to challenge her. I always challenge all my characters, not just physically, but also emotionally. So in Strong to the Bone, we learned for the first time that Caitlin was raped 18 years ago when she was an undergraduate in college. It's why she became a Texas Ranger, why she followed her father, grandfather, great-grandfather into the Texas Rangers. This was her motivation. But, she never, but that guy was never caught. Now, 18 years later, another girl about the age of Caitlin when she was raped is attacked, sexually assaulted, and it turns out it's the same guy. So Caitlin gets a say. chance yeah. to, get, to catch the dragon. Caitlin gets a chance to do, to succeed where she couldn't even try to succeed when she was a 20-year-old college undergraduate. Right, and where no one else did. Yeah, I thought that personal dimension was really fantastic. And that's why I say I think it's, you know, a really timely, timely story. I mean can't turn the news on without seeing that there are many Caitlin Strongs out there. So thank you, John. Thank you for introducing us to the Caitlin Strong series and to Strong to the Bone. J.D. Barker, tell us about, I'm going to focus on the fourth monkey. It came out from to mates this year. As I say, don't usually read serial killer books. Read it and loved it. Um, tell us about it and uh, what, what, what your thoughts are on switching to a series after having written a standalone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I always knew I wanted to write a serial killer novel, um, but I, I wanted to do something unique and something fresh, and you know, the idea just kind of kept bouncing around in my head for a while, and I came up with the thought of, you know, what, ha what would it be like if the, the killer actually died at the opening of the book? Because it, it wasn't really something I had seen done before. Um, so, I, so I had that little snippet of an idea, but um, I, I probably had that idea for maybe a good year or two. Um, and I just, I didn't really have the rest of the story. And then one day I was, I was in line at the grocery store, um, and there was this woman in front of me, uh, like two people in front of me, and she was in one of those um, electric carts, and, and she was pretty overweight. Um, and there was a little kid right behind me with his father, and the kid said something, and I'm not quite sure what he said, but his father leaned down to him, and he, he says, speak no evil, son, and then like stands back up. And I'm standing there, and I'm like, first of all, who says that? And what's <laughs> yeah. going on at their house? You know, like, what's That's going a heavy trip. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was just like the weirdest thing. And, and by the time I got home from that grocery store trip, I had the entire backstory for my serial killer together. Um, so The Fourth Monkey is about a serial killer who's been running around in Chicago for about five years. Um, police had very little information on him. They really had, had no you know, legitimate clues. Um, and his, his thing, the reason they call him The Fourth Monkey, is hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. Um, he, when he kidnaps a girl, he, he mails the body part back to the family. So he starts with their, their tongue, then an eye, then an ear, um, and eventually the body is found. So in the opening chapter of The Fourth Monkey, my killer is walking across the street in Chicago to a mailbox with a little white box tied with a black string. It's his signature box, and he gets hit and killed by a Chicago city bus. Um, so the police immediately know they've got their killer. Um, they know he's dead. And they also know that he's got another victim out there somewhere, but there's nothing on his body to actually identify who he is or where this victim might be. Um, so at that point, the, you know, the, the chase basically um, ensues. Um, they also find a journal on his body. It's basically a personal diary. Um, and that diary is weaved between the, the police procedural portion of the novel. So the novel bounces back and forth between the police trying to unravel the clues um, and the backstory for the killer, basically the, you know, why he became a serial killer in the first place, pulled from his 12-year-old point of view. 
um, and then right. you come to a head at the end. So it was a you fun meet his parents. Life. Yeah, you enjoyed the the journal entries where his parents come to life and sort of that claustrophobic suburban community comes to life. We're, we're really fascinated. Yeah, I, I had a ball with it. Um, and it, it's been doing phenomenal. I mean, it got options for television. Um, CBS is doing a network series. It's got a feature film coming out. Um, you, we're going to talk about all that. Okay. Oh, um, this, oh you're going to talk about This morning it hit number one on okay, Audible, which is the other thing I wanted to throw out there. I just thought that was uh, That is very cool. There's more cool stuff. I know there is. And we're going to actually, we're going to talk about Hollywood with John and John and J.D. and Eva, for that matter. Um, but thank you. Thank you, J.D. And I am going to say for Inside Thrill Reader, uh, listeners, sometimes you guys tweet at me after and you ask me how uh, gory are the books that we've talked about. You're interested in the books you've heard about here on the radio show and you want to get them, but some of you are afraid of gore and that kind of thing, um, which is understandable. I'm going to tell you that I tend to share those sensibilities. I don't usually read that much right on the page. And J.D.'s have it, but he did it in a way that you're really still connected to the story, and I don't think it's going to be bothersome. So I say that because, J.D., you were talking about, like, boxes of eyes, eyes and stuff like that. Yeah, um, make you a little squeamish. I mean, it, it gets the most, the most comparisons to Thomas Harris, so if you're a fan of Silence of the Lambs and Red Dragon, um, those right. types of books, it's along those lines. And we may talk about this, too. Actually, John Gilstrap and John Land and Eva, I would uh, put out there, too, that I'm interested in, you know, what you put on the page, and obviously there's a great deal of violence in the uh, Caitlin uh, Strong series and in, you know, Final Target, but I'm interested in what you decide to put on this page. But let's introduce Eva Mattiello, the memory box. I, I'm just going to give this one line about it because it's what made me want to read the novel, and then Eva, please tell us a little bit mm -hmm. about it. So the sure. one-liner is, what if you Googled yourself and discovered something shocking? Go, uh -huh. so, Eva. Is that good? <laughs> yeah. Yes. The memory nice. box um, is about a woman who Googles herself, and she discovers a past she does not remember. And um, it the idea came to me from an article I read in the New York Times many years ago. Uh, it was the front page of the New York uh, the New York Times style section, and it was specifically about people Googling themselves. And this is when the whole Googling thing was taking off. So this was, you know, at least 10 years ago. Um, and, and in the story, there was a 17-year-old boy who was Googling himself with his friends, high school buddies, and he discovered that he was on a missing persons list. Um, and that's a true story. He was living in L.A. He found out that he was on a missing persons list in Canada and that he was kidnapped when he was two. Um, and I remember hearing or reading the story. I have the chills, like, just telling this story now, which I always do, because it was horrible, of course, to, to read the story about this kid who he didn't know who to turn to at this point. Who does he tell? You know, he's not going to go to his mom and say. Um, yeah, so he turned to a teacher, and then uh, his mother actually went to jail. She was the one that took him from – and his mom was his – uh, his real mom who lost him in a custody battle when, when he was two, um, she lost him to her ex-husband. But um, I remember reading that story and saying, wow, that is an awesome idea for a thriller that someone else is going to write, you know. Because um, at that point, I, I wasn't writing. I hadn't been writing. I was, I was uh, you know, in my other career in uh, the cosmetic industry um, as a PR person. But um, I just got inundated with ideas about this story that I could not block out, and I started writing like crazy. But I set it um, in a fictional version of uh, a New Jersey suburb where I live, and um, the protagonist was a mom of two young children and someone who I could very much identify with. Uh, but it is, like you said before, a domestic or psychological thriller in the same vein as um, I've always been kind of inspired by the Stepford Wives, you know, that the setting is this beautiful, respectable suburb um, and something really crazy is going on. Uh, and it, it creates a facade for the story, which is exactly what happens in the memory box. The behind um, the scenes is the really treacherous part. Exactly, exactly. 
Okay, well, thank you, Eva, for introducing us to the Memory Box. And really, each of these books by each of my guests tonight, today, whenever you're listening to the podcast, Final Target, Strong to the Bone, The Fourth Monkey, and The Memory Box would just be great additions to your reading pile because they're all gripping in their own way. Let's circle back to something that J.D. just brought up, but we'll, we'll come to J.D. We're going to start with John Gilstrap, who's had phenomenal success from what I can see in the industry that, you know, I think is sort of a hair's breadth away from our own, which is Hollywood. Um, tell us a little bit about what you have done in that industry, John, and also it sounds like one of your books, Six Minutes to Freedom, may be coming to life on the big screen. Can you talk to us about it? Sure. The Well, you know, I've, I've had fabulous success with no actual successes. Um, <laughs> I've been paid, you know, for movie rights. Uh, I've had I've sold two books outright. I've had options on others. Uh, I've been hired to write four screenplays, and nothing, nothing of mine has ever made it to the screen. So uh, the... Um, Maybe the next time is, is the charm. I find that Hollywood is, uh, it's always a thrill, you know. It's, there's no way I would want to write screenplays as the primary way to make a living just because it's, uh, it's sort of unforgiving and you don't own anything. You know, if you write an original screenplay and you sell it to the studio, then the studio can do with it whatever it wants. And just from a control freak point of view, that's, that's where I am. Uh, the most recent project, Six Minutes to Freedom, which is actually still alive, it, uh, it has a director now that's attached to it. Um, that's uh, huge. It is huge. It is huge. Uh, Balthazar Komikor is his name. He's an Icelandic director who's actually been nominated for several Academy Awards for foreign films. Mm. But, you know, as far as the screenwriting part, I thought I was being clever. So when I optioned the rights to Six Minutes to Freedom ten years ago, uh, I attach myself as a screenwriter because I want to get back in the union and, you know, it's health insurance, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of reasons I'm calling to get back in the union to be a screenwriter. And when you do that, the way the rule works is um, you have a quote. It's, it's sort of your price tag is called your quote. And no, normally it's based on what you were paid for the last film project, right? So I attach myself as a screenwriter so that when there was finally money behind the project that I would get my screen writing opportunity, and we'd move on. Well, here's how Hollywood works. They paid me my quote not to write the screenplay. Because <laughs> they wanted to hire somebody else. So I don't know if that was saying, hey, John, you really suck, or we, would, we just would rather have someone else doing this. But that's, that's the way of Hollywood. So, yeah, I've had success in the sense that check's clear, um, but not in the sense of actually getting anything produced. It, you know, it's, just, it's that weird industry. Yeah, I think that's very common. and Yeah, and that is huge success. But I think actually even be, I mean, the way I would interpret the uh, we'll pay you not to write the screenplay is we really want to get this movie made, and maybe they want to attach a screenwriter with a bigger name or something like that. I mean, I, I would take that as all good in a way. you got the money and maybe you'll get the screenwriter who can push it through to finally, you know, put it into production. Absolutely. Well, you know, the big day, there are two big days for an author whose book is optioned or bought or whatever goes to Hollywood. One is the day that you sign the contract, because that comes with a check. But then comes the back-end money, which is on the first day of principal photography. And in, at least in my contract, that's pretty much it. I mean, there are percentage points. You never see that money. So I'm, I'm put anything that will get us to the first day of principal photography and also hold hold fealty to the book uh, is what I look forward to. And this, this project, I would tell you, Six Minutes of Freedom is the only nonfiction book that I've ever written. And it is a, it's about a Delta operation in 1989 where Kurt Muse, a political prisoner, was rescued uh, from a prison, Modelo Prison in Panama City in the opening, literally the opening shots of Operation Just Cause in uh, the invasion of Panama were in support of his rescue. So that's what the book is about. And Kurt's family, his, his son and daughter, who are 15 and 12, had to flee the country by themselves. Uh, oh, wow. With people chasing them. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot of thriller elements to it. So since most of these people are still alive, I really hope they don't take too much uh, leeway with the story. But I have no control. Right. No, but it sounds like it would make a great song. Wow. All right. I wish you good luck with that. Um, John Land. Tell us about any any 
any Hollywood or TV, you know, trickles or, you know, bigger things, anything in your past and anything in your current history. And if by chance the answer is really not much and I'm not going to be able to talk much about the subject, please tell us about how you teamed up with Heather Graham because I can swear I read one of them already and yet when I look through your bio. Okay, okay. So you can talk about either. This is a question for John Land. Um, and really, talk about Hollywood, if it ties in, or talk about the series with Heather Graham. Well, I think that my experience, I think, you know, what John is describing is not typical, because what he just described really puts him at a, in a rarefied air, the fact that he's mm-hmm. getting paid as a screenwriter. I have the opposite experience. I find producers come to me and they, and, and with, you know, with an original script idea, or uh, they want, or I send them a script and they really like it, and then the fun begins. It's like, it's perfect, I don't need, we don't need to change anything. A year later, I've done 50 rewrites, been paid absolutely nothing, 45 different stars have been attached, 16 directors have been attached, and nothing ever happens. And, and one of the most important thing, now JD is smiling, I can, we're not on Skype, but I can feel it. Um, what, you know, part of it being a writer is discipline. Part of being a writer is knowing when to say no. And I've learned that when someone calls you and says, hey, I want to option your screenplay, I want to option your book, I want you to do this, but I can't pay you. I'm good. I'm going to, once I get the money, you're going to do great. I'm going to pay you 3%. I'm going to double your quote. I'm going to do this. When they can't pay you to work, they can't pay you. You're never going to see any money, and you're never going to see that project in the light of debt. It's not going to happen. And yeah. being disciplined as a writer means separating dreams from reality. And we are writers are incredibly optimistic. We're all such nice people. That's why Thriller Fest is so much fun. There, there are no jerks. There are no. It seems like assholes are at a real. It's hard to throw to throw a rock. You're not going to hit an asshole in a community of writers. <laughs> so you know, we want to believe. We want. We, we have these big visions. And if someone says, "I want to make your book into a movie," we see the film. We don't see the process. We see the big screen, and we we've already spent the money in our heads. And I have spent so much wasted time, um, wasted effort on things that have never happened. So I would rather make a tenth of the money and know it's going to come than chase ten times the money in the fact that it will very likely, almost certainly, never come. I have had one original screenplay made into a film, a teen comedy called Dirty Deeds, which had a disastrous theatrical release. One of the, maybe one of the worst in history, but it's now been downloaded 35 million times for free. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, on the Internet. So it's great. Now, it, it, there's been interest in Caitlin Strong. Uh, one quick anecdote, then I'll turn it over. This is the nature of the business. You're all, now you're all going to be smiling, but especially Gilstrap, who's going to cover his mouth when I'm about to say he's going to laugh. Caitlin Strong was actually set up at Sony. And it looked really good. We had a terrific showrunner. Michael Diener was attached for a while, who was part of the team that did Justified. And Sony saw my female Texas Ranger series, Caitlin Strong, as a female Justified. Everything was going great until the nightmare all writers fear the most. Killer Women came on ABC, a, a, a competing female, there's never been a show about a female Texas Ranger, and all of a sudden there was Sue, and they beat us to the punch, and it was the most god-awful television show ever made. It was horrible. They filmed 13 episodes. The only reason it got on the air was because of Sophia, uh, Sophia Vergara was the executive producer. They never aired all the episodes, and that knocked Caitlin off the air. So... Uh, hopefully, when you come back to me, I'll have more good news to report. Something more optimistic than I, my experience in, in Hollywood. John, do you think that the fact that the you know it was there at Sony, and you know obviously a lot of people know about it at that point, like did somebody else get wind of it, or do you think it was just in the zeitgeist, and there happened to be two or three in the works at the same time? Two or three. Yeah, years. John, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I, I would love to think that I'm a good enough writer that people steal from, uh, yeah. but I'm probably not. And 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 the, the, 
and the idea that uh, it was, you know, female heroes were becoming popular. So I think it was just mm-hmm. literally, I think it was just coincidence. Um, but wow. but there are, there's another company that has Caitlin now, and they have a, they have okay. a really good writer uh, assigned for television. You know, they've, they've attached a really good writer. So um, I, I don't think about it very much because, um, you know, the money's already spent in my head anyway, so I can't spend any more of it. <laughs> Uh, so we'll see. Um, you know, it's it's like uh, now, now that I'm not thinking about it anymore, maybe that'll be the time that it happens. Right, exactly. You'll be buying your popcorn next. All right, great. J.D. Barker, I mean, yours is going to be an interesting counter story because it's much newer. You know, the book just sold. It seems like the fourth month you just sold the year before last. Um, so tell us about your experience with Hollywood. Tell us what's happening now. Hollywood is definitely a nutty place. Um, very fun to visit, but I'm very glad that I live in Pennsylvania. Um, and I, I think one of the best advice that I probably gotten on Hollywood was, was real early on, and it was just keep your head down and write the next book. Hollywood can be very noisy, um, and don't let it distract you. Um, and, and I totally found that to be true. When, when we were doing the, the calls for Fourth Monkey, um, it was a very odd week because I was still working a full-time job, and I had to keep ducking out to talk to publishers because Fourth Monkey was going to auction. Um, and at the same time, it was about to go to auction on the film and TV side. Um, so I was working my day job, and I would have to duck out into the hallway to take a call from, like, you know, the guy who produced the Transformer movies or Ron Howard or, or something silly. <laughs> it's such a very, very weird, surreal moment. Um, but one of the first things that actually jumped out at me is when I started talking to the film guys, the first thing they did was start going into all the things in the book that would need to be changed in order to get it down to a two-hour film. You know, we've got to take this character and combine him with this character, and this storyline needs to go, and we could maybe tweak this a little bit. And, and it's somebody had told me once also that, you know, once you sign on a film or TV deal, it's no longer your story. Like the book is really the only thing that is 100% yours. Um, even an audio book, I mean, once a narrator gets involved, now you've got somebody mm-hmm. else's take on it. So that's not even yours anymore. So it's really just the book. Um, and, you know, it, it really can be distracting. I'm, I got really lucky. I mean, Fort Monkey's old, you know, pretty pretty big. Um, there's already director and writer and everything attached, and it's moving forward. Um, and I got actually, I think a lot of the noise came into play. What John's talking about was after the fact, um, because I spoke to a lot of big producers, and after that sold to somebody else, a lot of those guys called back, and they wanted to know what else I had out there. Um, and would I be willing to write this or develop this? And, and, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in, you know, coming up with an idea and, and letting other people run with that where you're physically not getting paid. Um, so, again, I just, like, I just keep my head down and just, just keep writing. That's, that's the best way, I think, to approach it. And, you know, if these things pan out, they're awesome. But I really see film and TV as really just an advertising vehicle for the book um, and, and the next book and the next book after that. If they happen, that's great. If they don't, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, like, like John had touched on, you actually, as a writer, you get to sell these options over and over again. Um, so if they don't make it, you know, chances are it's going to come around and, and you'll get another shot. Yeah, very interesting. Eva, tell us about your experiences, because I can certainly see the memory box of the movie. I see that woman sitting down in front of her computer and Googling that result. Um, has anybody else seen it, too? Well, there is some murmurings of interest, but nothing real at, at the moment. So I, like J.D., uh, I'm just, you know, trying to keep that out of my mind and and the distraction out of my mind and keep writing. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I keep thinking if it's going to happen, well, now's the greatest time ever for TV, movies, film. I mean, there's so many places where so many places looking for content. So, um, and it's a good, the psychological thriller is really, um, has been very successful for the last couple of years. So I'm hoping that it doesn't, you know, I know everything ebbs and flows, and but I'm hoping it doesn't, the popularity doesn't go away um, anytime soon. And um, so, yeah, nothing yet to report. Okay. But you have a film agent or somebody who keeps feelers out? or I just really want to I see do have movie a movie agent. Yeah, okay. I do. Okay. I have a film and a TV agent, and they are um, they're working on it. Great. All right. Well, thank you for your answers, and thanks for the inside peeks at Hollywood uh, from John and John and J.D. I mean, a crazy, crazy world. Um, okay. We're about halfway through tonight's Inside Thrill, today's Inside Thrill, whether you're listening 
to the podcast, The Very Night It Airs, or later on in January even. I'm glad you have picked us up because we're talking with four tremendous thriller authors, John Gilstrap and John Lamb, J.D. Barker, and even Natiello. And we're having kind of a free-ranging conversation about their latest books and this crazy business. And so I'd like to spend the second half of the show talking about why I say this crazy business. So each of our writers tonight were actually specially chosen because they all publish in a different way. And by that, I don't mean they all have different publishers. I mean, they're really walking a different road at this point in time. There have been overlaps, you know, at other, you know, books and markers in their history as authors. But at this point in time, they're really representative of four very different ways to publish. And I would like each of our authors to talk a little bit about, you know, whether the way they are publishing now feels like it has an effect on their careers. Do they think about it much? Is it just not even relevant? Um, do they play this game a little differently because of the way they are publishing? We're interested in marketing on Inside Thrill. A lot of our writer um, listeners ask, what's the best way to get the word out about my books? And certainly the way you publish has a lot to do with the way you market. So in no particular order, except I'm putting them in a particular order, John Gilstrap is publishing with Kensington, which is one of the three finest independent publishers in this country right now. John Land is publishing with Torforge, which is part of Macmillan, which is one of the big five publishers in this country. J.D. Barker's Fourth Monkey is out from HMH, but he's also self-published in the past, and is sort of what we call a hybrid author who knows both roads. And even Atiello, as we said, has experienced phenomenal success as a self-published author, even hitting the New York Times, which many, many, many successful uh, traditionally published authors have yet to do. Um, so I would like each author to tell us a little bit about what they think of their publishing path and I don't know, the state of the union in, in book selling today. And if you have a great marketing tip that is in your mind, if you remember by the time you're done talking with all that, uh, throw it out there because we're interested in that too. And we'll start with John Gilstrap. Well, I've been doing this for over 20 years now. Um, my first book, Nathan's Run, which I wrote in 1994, came out in 1996, sold it in 1995. And it sold for a stupid amount of money. It was, it, it made headlines. It was that kind of thing. You know, most talked about author in New York and that sort of thing. And, which is lovely. And it sold around the world. The movie rights sold for a lot. And the, it really, it was totally life changing. And before Nathan's Run came out, we sold the rights to, at all costs, my second book for even more. And this is, I don't, the 90s were an entirely different era of publishing than they are now. Not only were there more publishers, but it was, I don't know, everybody was throwing money sort of irresponsibly. So not on, I mean, Nathan's run did really, really, really well, but it didn't earn out its advance and by quite a lot. And so by the time, uh, that was from Collins, Warner Books had bought at all costs, and by the time they saw I was happy with Nathan's run, a lot of the marketing budget was pulled away from it at all costs, so it didn't do very well at the time. Of course, these are 20-year-old books now, so they're all doing very well, you know, ultimately. So when it came time to do Scott Free and even Stephen, my third and fourth books, uh, that was at Simon & Schuster, uh, Atria. Actually, it was with Pocket Books, which became Atria. You know, this, the, the consolidation was then happening. And the bottom line was, by the time I had finished my fourth book, um, I couldn't get anything away. Um, I was that author. And it was my fault, you know, because I had been overpaid. Uh, that, that's the author's fault. It's not the publisher's fault. It's the entertainment business in general. So is the artist's fault. And I, I don't need to sound like a victim here. It's just it's the reality of the business. So when I realized that my fiction no longer had a home, it was time to shift gears. And this is when I stumbled on to six and as a nonfiction book, and, uh, which took four years to write. Uh, and because of the publishing history and because I'm not a journalist, I write thrillers, I don't write nonfiction, again, this, I couldn't give this away until Kensington, Steve Zacharias is the owner of, of Kensington, and he's been a fan of mine for years. In fact, he attended a book signing for um, 
Nathan's Run back in 95 or 96. And he liked the book, and he bought it. And and it did really well, mostly at military bases, uh, because it's, it's, it's a military topic. But that book got me extraordinary access to the Special Forces community. You know, I visited the Delta compound and you know, all the, the Navy SEAL compound, and just that community trusted me, and I had this whole body of research and knowledge, which resonates with my past, my background. I'm an expert in explosives and hazardous materials and weaponry and that kind of stuff. That's, that's what my day job has been. So based on that, that's where Jonathan Graves comes from, the former Delta operator who goes out and does freelance hostage rescue. And Kensington was was really good with Six Minutes to Freedom, and then they bought the Grave series, and they have been behind it 100%. I've been their lead title uh, ever since we, we started for my slot. Uh, started paperback original until actually Final Target is the first hardcover in that series, and it was it was hardcover and mass market, uh, premium mass market came out at the same time. So, you know, I owe a lot to Kensington. They've sort of rescued my career. Um, the books do very, very well now. So, you know, it's, it's, it's become a symbiotic relationship. But what I find, having been with the Big Five, and I'm not saying the Big Five at all, uh, Kensington I think is number six, um, they make a decision based on the book and what Steve and his team want to do. You know, there's no, there's no corporate oversight. So I'm thrilled. I could not be happy with that publisher right now. Fascinating. And it's funny because one of the things you said that points to how kind of relatively agile I think some of the more established independents are is they brought it out, Final Target out in Mass Market and Hardcover at the same time, which is such a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Let's move on to John Lamb. You know, um, it, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I love being with, with – I, I, I really have enjoyed my experience with Torforge. I've expanded it a little bit because I'm also with uh, Penguin Random House now because I'm doing two books a year in the Murder, She Wrote series. I've taken that series over from Don Bain, who recently passed away. We shared the same agent. So this is one of the op- this is a great opportunity for me to build my brand by taking over something that's established. The first one I did, A Date with Murder, comes out in May. Um, and, and I really had a fu- – so I'm Jessica Fletcher. You are Jessica Fletcher. I have a lot of fun writing as Jessica Fletcher, but here's the point of that. Writing at, 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 at a level today um, when there are so few writers who are getting front door display space and there are so few writers getting the co-op, getting the great placement. Um, there are New York Times bestselling authors and then there's everybody else. That's pretty much, unfortunately, the way it is. And what that leads to are two things. You, the first thing you have to do before you can succeed in the marketplace is succeed with your own publisher, unless you're self-published, in which case you're only worried about yourself, which is the, in some ways the greatest place to be. But if I'm not the top title of the month at my own company, I'm not going to be in all the places I need to be to be as successful as I want to be. So it's a constant struggle for relevance. It's a constant struggle inside the publisher to sell into them, for their for the salespeople to get excited, for the publishers and the, the top brass to get excited at, at McMillan. Because if they're not excited, I'm going to get slotted very low, um, and the books aren't going to get the distribution that they need to achieve the sales that I want, that I, that I aspire to. This is why working with Heather Graham was such a great experience, because I saw life on the other side. I saw what happens when you're when you're a New York Times bestselling author because in in doing the series with Heather, I'm a New York Times bestselling author by proxy, not myself, but because of Heather's name, it says New York mm-hmm. Times bestselling author Heather, you know, with both of us. So it's kind of like I, I'm symbiotic. I, I kind of established it that way. So the problem is you can't. With a traditional publisher, unless you are a one of the top seasonal leads, there are three seasons to the publishing year. There are maybe two books in each season a publisher can push in a big way. If you're not one of those six books every year, well, how do you survive as a writer? How do you 
make ends meet financially, and how do you live your dream? How do you continue to live your dream? The way you do that is I write, you know, I'm doing the series with Heather. I'm continuing my Caitlin Strong books. I've taken on the Murder, She Wrote series. I write non I also write um, a nonfiction book every year. I write a tremendous amount. I, I, you know, I'm amazed. You know, when John says he, he invested four years in a book, I never spend more than four months on a book because I can't afford to spend more than four months on a book financially. Um, I have to be able to write a book in a certain slot, um, and I'm pretty good at that. Now, I don't mean that I'm, I, I'm cookie cutter. I don't mean that I'm, uh, I'm just plugging this stuff in and doing it because uh, I work incredibly long hours um, and I write very, very quickly. And I've always written fast. I've never spent inordinate time on an individual book. But with the marketplace today, with consolidation, with the death of mass market, with the reliance, and just to give, you know, a little, you know, in the old days, you know, there's a saying in the book business that 80% of your revenue comes from 20% of your product. What's happening in this book business today is that Outlets are only stocking the 20% of authors who are producing their, their revenue. The other 80%, so instead of there being right. two or three John Land books, there are two or three more Stephen King books in airports. There is more okay. James Patterson. There's more Clive Cussler. How do we as writers remain relevant? And that's why the model the, the models that the other two people, besides John and I, J.D., at least, you know, that we're talking on, on this panel here, they have found uh, either a hybrid model or a self-published model, which eliminates – now, it creates, there are other problems associated with those, but some of what I'm alluding to, they don't have to deal with. Right. Well, so we're going to hear about that for sure, but I do just want to really make a note, because you said something very important, John Land, um, about diversifying. And it also makes me think that, I mean, that's what you've done. You've diversified. You've diversified from fiction to nonfiction. You've diversified from writing on your own to collaborating. Um, some people, some writers diversify by doing both YA and adult. And it also makes me think that you've both, John Gilstrap and John Lamb, really found where your natural talents lie and what is it deep inside each of you that allows you to write in the way you do. So for you, it was always quite organic to write fast, John Land, and that may not be true for another writer. And John Gilstrap, you tapped into, you know, that part of your past that had uh, expertise and explosives so that you could bring these stories to life and make a whole community of operatives connect and trust you. You really, you really sort of either accidentally or quite intuitively, um, you know, figured out where it was going to take you in the richest direction. So I want to highlight that. And then, um, yeah, John Land, you're absolutely right. Let's move on to hear from J.D. Barker and Eva Natiello. And obviously we all knew that self-publishing was going to fix the world. So <laughs> tell us how it happened. Um, J.D., well, do you want to go first as a hybrid sure. author? Yeah, so I, I was actually, before I published on Forsaken, I was working for about 20 years as a book doctor and a ghostwriter. Um, so I got to see a lot of inside info um, during that time frame because a lot of the books I worked on were picked up by, you know, agents after that, picked up by the publishers, and I got to see what happened with them. And that gave me a lot of insight. And when I wrote Forsaken, um, I did shop at the agents, and I got a couple offers from publishers, but honestly, the money just wasn't wasn't there. I mean, if this was 2014, um, and the advances were small. I think it was like $5,000, $10,000. And I started looking at all the rights that I would be giving up by doing that, and it just didn't make financial sense for me to do it. Um, so I ultimately decided to self-publish the book, but I committed to publishing it in a way that would be on par with a, a, a top five um, publisher. So I, I you know, hired professional cover designers, professional editors, um, proofreaders, all that kind of stuff, um, and released the book as a hardcover, a softcover, a mass market paperback, and audio book all on the same day. Um, and then after that, I put my marketing hat on. Um, and I quickly learned that places like bookstores will not carry you if you're self-published. Um, newspapers will not review you if you're self-published. Um, at least in 2014, that's, that's changing quickly. But back, back at that time, it was a, you know, it was definitely a negative. Um, so I, I had to do what I called guerrilla marketing. So I basically looked for things that nobody else was doing. I, I sat down and I created a list 
of all the marketing techniques I saw other authors doing, whether they were self-published or they were traditional. And then after I had that list together, I tried to create a list of things that didn't appear on the first list. So basically try to come up with original ideas. Um, and ultimately, I, I got lucky. That worked. I ended up selling about a quarter million copies of that book. Um, and then when Fourth Monkey was finished, um, I was writing that around the same time, um, the traditional publishers had taken notice. Uh, I made enough noise in the, the indie world where they, you know, they, they scooped me up, and I, I got to sell that one at auction. Um, and where I'm finding, and, you know, I, I'm in a unique place right now because I'm, I'm very comfortable self-publishing, and I'm also very comfortable on the traditional side. And I'm finding that when I speak to the traditional publishers, you know, there, there's a lot of things that we can all kind of learn from each other. Um, right now, I've got books with HMH, HarperCollins, and Putnam, um, with, with other ones um, about to announce soon. And, and I'm finding that when we have marketing calls, you know, they lay out a, a terrific marketing plan for all these different projects. But there's holes there. There's things that they're not doing um, that I did on the indie side. Um, and we're kind of now we're creating a, a hybrid marketing plan um, that's basically taking the best of the, the marketing ideas that I came up with as an indie and combining that with the best of the stuff from the traditional side and then rolling out with that. Um, and the other thing that I've noticed is um, my, my agent, she sold all of my books. They're, they're sold individually in each country, which I guess you, know, you could either sell all of your rights basically to one publisher and they publish worldwide, um, or you can sell a title to different publishers around the world. Um, and that's how I'm set up. And I'm finding that none of them talk to each other. Um, so I'm trying to make that happen. So I'm kind of playing like ringmaster. So when I've got a, you know, the fourth monkey was released in the UK and the US, um, I'm the guy that's in the middle, you know, monitoring all the marketing plans for all the different publishers and trying to get everything so that it's aligned. Because um, it doesn't make sense for one publisher to spend money on Facebook and then another publisher to follow right behind them and spend money on Facebook when I'd rather see that money spent somewhere else. Um, you know, so we're, we're, I'm trying to create that type of open dialogue between everybody just to, to work smart because it's a, it's a difficult industry. I mean, last year, I think there was about a million titles or so that were published. Um, 300,000 of those were traditional. Um, and, and everybody yeah. is essentially competing, you know, for those readers. Um, so you JD, if you can get all the publishers, if you can get all the publishers to talk about, you know, how to get word out about the books, after that you can get all the publishers in different countries, you can get all the different countries to talk about how to solve world peace. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I might have to put that one on somebody else. Um, yeah. I am, I am no, that's that. amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, that and you're listening to your ideas that come from the indie world, which is really fantastic, because obviously the best of both worlds would be if they were talking to each other and sharing what's smart about each one. But I think we will know more about what's smartest on the indie side if we hear, Eva, I know you had a very frustrating story after, you know, and you talk about indie publishing, self-publishing as your plan B, but it went bananas for you, and you made the New York Times list. So tell us what's, what's what when you're just standing on that indie side of the sun. Yeah, you're right. It was my plan Z. I, I never aspired to, you know, self-publish my book. Um, and But I do think um, now in retrospect that self-publishing really allowed me to get the book um, read and, and, and really, really ended up being a success. You know, I, I don't think I would have seen this success possibly if it was traditionally published. I think the fact that I was entrepreneurial-minded and love marketing um, and just found a way to do leverage the things that can't be done on the traditional side. You know, I mean, somebody mentioned it, whether it was J.D. or John earlier. Um, I think J.D. said, as far as media goes, you know, trying to get media placement in traditional media is impossible for an indie author. Um, and there, there were definitely hurdles getting into bookstores, but there's a way to do it, you know, and, and being the Google queen, you know, I, I Google <laughs> absolutely everything and find out um, who's tried to do it before me and who succeeded and who failed. And it's really important, I believe, because I now, uh, you know, talk about marketing all the time, um, to look at the 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 people who failed at it, to look at their stories, see what went wrong, because you can learn just as much from people who have um, not succeeded as you as you learn from the people who have done it right, you know. And um, the marketing, I just, you know, I knew at the beginning that I had to depend on certain things. Grassroots was definitely the way to begin for me because I was such an unknown entity, and I, I thought, well, 
I have to start with my own community. And if you can't be a rock star in your own community, you're never going to get anywhere, you know. And it was and it was something I learned right away that I had to depend on readers to be my sales force. And um, the book club, um, you know, I, I just utilized the book clubs as much as I could and still do. I've attended now over 250 book club discussions on, on my first book, wow. Memory Box, and I do this worldwide, but it's, it's an incredible, you know, readers are so powerful. They're, you know, the, the um, you know, they spread the word about your book, and, and um, it's, it's just an incredible resource to get into that book club circuit. Um, so how did you tap into that, Eva? How did you – I don't want to – Well, it, that's fascinating. It's so well. funny. I mean, at, at the beginning, it was my own community, and everybody it's, – it's a great book club book, The Memory Box. You know, it's a, it's a psychological thriller. It's a super fast read. It has tons of twists and turns. It has a shocking ending. I mean, it leaves you, in the end, you're kind of, what the heck just happened, that kind of thing, where you need to talk about it. You know, you need to turn to someone who's just read it to and, and say, what just happened there, you know? So all of those things make it a really great book club read. And it just took off in my community. But at the same time, it was very funny because I think it was in within the first month or a few weeks of the release of the book, I got... Um, uh, somebody contacted me through Goodreads. It was someone in Portland, Oregon. I did not know this person. I was just shocked that someone who was not a blood relative had read my book, you know, within the first few weeks of release. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you're reading it for your book club. And um, so I said to this woman, well, why don't I come to your book club in Portland? And so we decided not to tell her friend. We were gonna. She was gonna put a laptop on our kitchen counter, and as everyone was drinking wine and having cheese, she said to them, "Oh, somebody wanted to be here tonight, but she couldn't make it. She's in New Jersey, and she flips on her laptop, and there I am in her kitchen, and it was a huge hit. And and it was just things like that that took off. You know, um, I believe author accessibility is." definitely one of the reasons that the memory box became successful um mm. and um i just i am constantly in conversations with readers whether it's through goodreads um mostly i mean through goodreads and also people contact me all the time through through my website and things like that um but it's funny because um, what you're saying is exactly what taylor swift attributes her incredible rise to success back then it was myspace which doesn't exist anymore, but the, the communication with listeners to her songs and music lovers was how she became Taylor. So I could well understand that, uh, you know, accounting for Eva Natiello's rise with the memory box. We have five minutes left of Inside Thrill Radio. This is the season finale. We'll be back in January. But I want to make sure that each of our guests get to uh, – Say a couple final word, words, what they're working on right now, and maybe just one or two, like what things have you absolutely felt worked for you in getting the word out to readers? Uh, let's start with John Gilstrap, and we will be thanking John Gilstrap and John Land and J.D. Barker and even Atiello for joining us on Inside Thrill. So let, let's turn it over to the Johns, and then we'll uh, keep going down our line. All right. Uh, you know, what I'm working on now is the next in the uh, Jonathan Graves series. Uh, Scorpion Strike is in hand. Uh, it will be out next July. In fact, I just finished the copy edits on it, so it's time to move on to what I am calling – what do you think of this title? I'm calling it Grave 11. I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. it's, it's quite there yet. Um, but that's what all my books are called. When I, you know, it's just one, two, three, four, five. Um, <laughs> when it comes to the marketing stuff, you know, it, it's – I try to be accessible. I have a uh, YouTube channel now. Uh, it's it's called an in, Insider's a Writer's View of Writing and Publishing. It kind of talks about you know what the inside of the publishing industry, and it gets a lot of hits. The bottom line is the, the frustrating thing about trying to market something like books is there's a lot of wheel spinning, and you have no idea whether or not what you're doing is selling books. The fact that people like something on Facebook or that, you know, have a lot of followers on Twitter, you know, that, that sort of thing, that's all lovely. 
but is that really what, what sells books? So I want to get back to something J.D. said, which I think is, is the writer's should be number one, chapter one in the writer's Bible, and that is you know, keep your head down and write the next book. Yeah. My very first yeah. editor, uh, Rick Oregon at, at HarperCollins, he told me, uh, John, I got some advice for you, and that is never let being a writer get it in the way of writing. <laughs> and, you know, you can do conferences and all, and I love doing that. I love teaching seminars. I like, but, but the bottom line is, I think the only true power that a, mm-hmm. an author has in terms of, of really affecting his his sales is to do another book and another one and another one and another one. That that gets what John was saying in terms of, of keeping the creativity flow going and keeping the the, the marketing pump primed and. It's, it's the end of the day, the most important thing is to keep writing. One day you will be up to graves 11, 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Thank you, John. John Lamb, tell us about your next project. A couple words about what, what writers should do. Well, let, let, let me come at this from, from, let me jump off of what John said. And, and the, the, when, I, when I think about this, what I'm taking from this hour is listening to everyone describe their books. These sound like really good books, um, and having read John already in the past quite a bit, I know they're good books. Uh, I haven't read J.D., haven't read Eva yet, but here's the thing. It all starts with not just writing a book. It starts with writing a great book, writing the, great, the best book you possibly can, because it's a lot easier to sell a, a good product than it is to sell crap. And there's plenty of crap out there, especially in the film, in the film industry, that's getting sold. In the book business, it's so competitive. Those 300,000 books, Jenny, you've experienced this firsthand yourself. So many authors have, whether it's their first book, their second book, their third book, their first book, their first contract, or then they struggle to get the second contract. The most important thing you can do as a writer is write a great. Write, yes, but write the best book you can possibly write with a great, saleable concept that is marketable. Because if you create a product that you can't sell, then you, you know then, you, then it becomes a self-defeating prophecy. Right now, I'm literally at the halfway point in the first draft of Strong as Steel, which is Kate Strong, uh, number um, eleven, nine, uh, or oh, number 11. ten. No, number ten. I, 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 I lose track. Number ten. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's different than the others because after using Nazis, Russians. Chinese and ISIS as villains in the last four books, uh, it's more of a traditional something dug out of the desert, the old James Rollins, Steve Berry MacGuffin kind of thriller, mm-hmm. which I haven't done in a while. So it's fun because uh, I'm varying the pace a little bit. I'm doing something with Caitlin that I haven't done before. Um, and just like we found out, she was sexually assaulted in Strong to the Bone, the one that just came out. We're going to find out something else we didn't know about her in Strong to the Bone. Good cliffhanger from John Lamb. Katie Barker, <laughs> tell us what you're working on now and a couple quick words about what's a writer to do. Sure. Um, yeah, and I, I think they both just kind of touched on I mean, I get up first thing in the morning, and, and the first thing I do is I sit down on my nap, well, second thing after I get coffee, um, and, and I get my words done before I open email, before I look at anything else. I get those words out of the way for the project that I'm on. Because um, if you're not doing that, it, it's that's all for naught. Um, and you've got to turn out, it, it has to be the closest thing to perfect as far as the book goes as it can possibly be um, when you type that last page. You have to be willing to go back and edit and rewrite and do all those things. Um, that's honestly where I saw a lot of people drop the ball when I was doing the book doctor thing. A lot of people rushed that. They felt they got that first draft done, and my first draft is perfect. I don't have to touch it. They would throw it out there in the open market, and everybody would tell them, you know, it's, it's not that perfect. Um, and it would be forgotten. Um, and from a marketing standpoint, and I've tried a lot of stuff, but if I see anything at all, I just get an inkling that it might work for somebody, I'm usually all over it. Um, the only thing that I've seen that actually works all the time is word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to close the cover on your book, they've got to say, what the F, and they've got to pick up the phone or hop on social media, and they've got to tell somebody else about it. That's the only thing yeah. that works well and that's cost-effective. Um, because otherwise you can throw money at all these different social networks, all these different programs, but it, it just fizzles and dies every single time if you don't have that word of mouth. Um, so I think that's probably the most important thing you could possibly do. Um, from a writing standpoint, I'm almost done with another one, and it's, it's a little different from what I've done in the past. It's actually greatly inspired by Great Expectations. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of Dickens, um, and that's going to be finished up at probably, um, 
probably another two, three weeks or so. Um, next year, I've got the sequel, uh, the fourth monkey coming out. It's called The Fifth to Die. Um, that comes out in July. And then in September, I've got a prequel to Dracula that I wrote with Bram Stoker's family. Um, that one's coming out in, in the fall. So that's that's my next two projects. Very exciting. Thank you for those wise words, too. Word of mouth has always been king. Um, Eva, Natiana, tell us what's next. I totally you agree. On that. Yeah, I agree with the word of mouth. Um, right now, I am working on a standalone uh, called Mistaken, and uh, the protagonist is the host of a shopping channel who is stalked by a viewer. And uh, once the stalker is found, she goes missing. So um, it's really fun. Um, somebody once told me, uh, or actually wrote a review in the memory box, that the book should be read only if you have a defibrillator on hand. And um, that hopefully will be true of book number two. I just finished a chapter yesterday where I definitely needed a defibrillator. So... Um, if I should do a, yeah, like a gift with purchase, <laughs> buy the book, get the defibrillator. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I agree with the, the word of mouth. I kind of rely on it myself. And I think in a way, um, momentum is really important for someone who's an indie. And if you build a momentum, it feels almost like a golden handcuffs in a way. Like um, you don't want it to die. It's like or, or even, you know, kind of simmer out because you just want to keep it going like plates in the air. So, um, but it's exciting, too, because you're really in touch with your readers and you're hopefully communicating with them. And I think the other key is on the writing side is really to love your story and love your characters. And, and, and if it's fun, then, you know, it's a win-win and uh, it'll be a win for the reader as well. So... Uh, that's what I'm trying for. That's a great take. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Inside Thrill listeners. We will be very excited to join back with you in the new year. And thank you to my guests on Inside Thrill. This has been a very special show. John Gilstrap, John Lamb, J.D. Barker, and Eva Nassiello. You could not find better gifts than to look up these authors and buy or download their books for your holiday season. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thank Jenny. You. Great. This has been Inside Thrill, signing off, and good night.